Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. September 16th, 2021. And the Russian futurologist, transhumanist and all-round wacky scientist, Danila Medvedev, is in his Moscow apartment when there's a knock on the door. Medvedev looks up. Two shifty-looking guys are standing on his doorstep. Medvedev is immediately on high alert. It's been over two years since Medvedev's ex-partner, Valeria Udalova, broke into the premises of Kriorus, the cryonics company they founded together, and stole a bunch of frozen heads. In April 2021, Medvedev had bitten back, travelling to Kriorus's large white concrete facility in the nearby village of Semkoz with three supporters, changing the locks and taking pictures of themselves throwing up these signs with the lab's cryostats. Those are thermostats for the ultra-low temperatures you need to freeze a human body. Kind of like Occupy Wall Street, only for the cowboy world of cryonics. And beyond that, cryonics in the cowboy nation of Russia. Medvedev whips out his phone and starts filming. Take the phone away or I'll break it and break you, one of the men tells him. Who sent you? asks Medvedev, still filming. People sent me, the man replies. People? Medvedev has a pretty good idea who they are. Eventually, one of the men tells him, return what you owe, what is not yours, and don't go to jail. A couple months later, more intruders will enter the facility at Semkov. Udalova, dressed in a luxuriant light brown fur jacket, quarterbacks them as they prepare to take the cryostats. Before long, though, Medvedev is on the scene, and so are the cops. They're not sure which crazy, futurist device belongs to which mad scientist, or who's stolen them, or really, what's going on. Udalova pulls out a massive binder of documents that she says prove her claim to the facility, the cryostats, and the dozens of bodies and heads Cryorus has frozen, in the hopes of reviving them decades or even centuries after its foundation in 2005. Medvedev hasn't bought a thing. The cops let Udalova load up the equipment and leave. Medvedev is dejected, but he won't be defeated. One website, called Biohacker News, publishes a video of the heist alongside a caption. The Valeria Udalova faction is the winner of the first transhumanist war. In reality, though, this is just one battle. The war? That will be fought in different countries, bringing in years of pseudoscience, feuds and an Italian funeral home mogul arrested as part of the biggest ever raid on the Calabrian Mafia, the Andrangheta. The real war, now that is yet to be won. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we teach you not only to how to cover your tracks after committing crimes, but actually how to cheat death itself, which is Pretty apt, given we're recording this on the Easter Monday bank holiday. I'm your host, Sean Williams. I'm a freelance journalist in Berlin. Ordinarily, I'd be coming to you with Danny Gold. But I think as we're recording this, he's in a plane somewhere across the Atlantic, getting ready to report on the war in Ukraine. And we'll have more on that next week when he gets settled over there. But my guest on today's show is Peter Ward, a journalist based in the UK. Friend, we've worked on a bunch of stuff together over the years, including that Iceland High story we reworked for the show, what feels like a long, long time ago now. Uh, welcome to the show, Peter. No, thanks for having me on, mate. It's great to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Just before we get into everything, there's always a Patreon to shout out. Danny just put a mini episode about the uh, so-called contract killer gas czar of NYC, which is 
quite a good title. Um, we've got scripts, notes, reading lists, and interviews, and it's only going to get more now. Danny's back in journalism and tweeting about air raid sirens and getting drunk in Odessa and tweeting about stray dogs or whatever people do out there. Um, and we're doing more shows, you guys are suggesting these days, so keep them coming, theunderworldpodcast at gmail.com. So me and Peter have probably witnessed enough organized crimes during our time working on tech stuff to fill up about six or seven episodes at least. But today we're going to talk about robbery, Russian mafias, frozen heads, and weirdly Seth MacFarlane. Uh, because Peter's got a new book out soon called The Price of Immortality, The Race to Live Forever. And it's all about transhumanists, cryonics, biohackers, and folks who basically want to live forever. So that's good because I really want to podcast forever. So it really resonated with me. Uh, I went over to your Amazon page before this, mate, and you've got some pretty mustard reviews up there already. So I'm not going to blow too much smoke up your ass. But yeah, I've read the book. It's really good. You didn't give me a shout in this one, but pointed you on the show anyway because i'm such a nice guy <laughs> yeah thanks mate so I, I only actually wrote about half of those reviews myself so um some of them are actually genuine and oh um, nice that's yeah yeah, yeah. 50% more teaser, than the last lot. Uh, there is actually also a story <laughs> about someone telling you to blow smoke up your ass so um yeah that's in there as ah. well and before you think there's not much of a link between chronics and crime well think about it right people are working in cutting edge science sometimes quackery it involves cutting people's heads off or putting them in super powerful freezers and all sorts. I mean, there's tons of crime in this world. And as we'll digress into later, there's even a link to one of the most famous robberies in American history. Uh, so there's tons of going on this episode. Plus, you lot might actually learn something about science. So double win. Um, yeah, mate, I remember you first telling me about the idea for this book. I think it was like before the pandemic in New York at a Mets game. Do you remember that? I think we we're talking about this. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're extremely high up watching the Mats play uh, in the stadium. And uh, yeah, obviously, naturally talking about living forever. Yeah, what else do you do for three and a half hours of watching very little action? Um, and then you headed down to Hollywood, Florida, just before the lockdowns and chaos and all of that stuff. And you met a bunch of guys at something called the Church of Perpetual Life. Um, you want to tell us a little more about them? Because they're, they're pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely. They are they are a weird group. Um, so the Church of Perpetual Life is is like an organized religion, um, and they all believe that they're going to live forever. They believe that somehow technology will will make them choose when they want to die. Um, so they they hang out in this church in in, in Florida, um, and they have these sort of the, these get-togethers where a lot of it is just like looking at PowerPoint presentations and looking at tiny. <laughs> advances in science and it's all a bit boring but there's also a lot of like whipping up the crowd with um these sort of rallies against death um so one guy sort of stood up um one of the main guys and, and listed off a bunch of millionaires who died in the in the previous month um since the last meeting and then sort of mocked them all for dying and not saving themselves with all their millions so um yeah really odd crowd um there's a definitely a little bit of a, a cultish vibe to it um because there's not much the science will only take them so far and, and that's not very far at all so you have to have a lot of belief <laughs> and that kind of leads you to that yeah. sort of cultish weird religion type type vibe and a lot of powerpoint presentations which i'm pretty sure is what jesus used when he was first calling out at the tomb so yeah um <laughs> before we actually kick off with some some crimey stuff uh tell me if i'm wrong but there's there's actually a difference between cryogenics right but and that's just generally getting things down to really low temperatures and observing them. Uh, and that might be bodies. And then there's cryonics, which is specifically freezing bodies at those temperatures, which is anything from minus 150 C to around absolute zero, which I think is minus 273 degrees C, which is theoretically when stuff just stops altogether. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. So, so cryogenics, best way to look at it, cryogenics, legitimate science, cryonics, people trying to reanimate dead bodies after they've frozen them. Um, so less, right. um, less reliable science. Okay. Yeah. So, so cryogenic sciences we're using as far as I see in MRI scans, storing food for long periods of time, uh, which is all tied in with the future of space travel and probably Elon Musk's next kid's name or something. I mean, does he, does he actually come up much in the book? He, he actually doesn't. Elon Musk is like, the one that all of them want 
Like they want him so desperately to get involved in um, making people live forever. So far he's resisted, but all their other sort of heroes, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and, and those guys have, have started throwing money at it. But, but Musk, unfortunately, Papa Musk hasn't got involved. Um, so <laughs> it was kind of a relief to be honest. So I didn't have to put up with the Musk grows, but um, yeah. I imagine the Venn diagram of transhumanists and people who defend Elon Musk when he calls people pedophiles is like pretty much a circle. Yeah, pretty um, much bang on. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, you've got your Ray Kurzweil's and Peter Thiel's and Aubrey the Greys. Uh, those have been signed up to be cryogenically frozen. Um, according to Ray Kurzweil, he's like the head of future or something at Google, I think. Um, he said, quote, my primary strategy for living through the 21st century and beyond is not to die. I think that's more likely to work than chronics, but they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> so, cool. Um, so, yeah, anyway, so today there are around 500 people stored in vats around the world, around two-thirds of them in the US, and the majority of them are two places, which is Alcor and the Cryonics Institute. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're touching on this a little bit, but is it actually kosher? Does this stuff work is there solid science behind it there is absolutely no scientific evidence that this would work um so oh, okay yeah so I, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up from the start i just want to be uh very clear um if people are starting to get ideas already this this probably isn't going to work and most people involved in it actually they sort of acknowledge that they know it's only a tiny chance but their argument is i'd rather take that tiny chance that i'll be reanimated in the future rather than be buried or cremated and, and have zero chance. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's no, no evidence that when you freeze the bodies, they're pre- preserved properly. And there's definitely no evidence that we'll ever be able to reanimate anybody in the future. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's good news that we can all take home after listening to the podcast. <laughs> so anyway, so let's take this back a few decades. Uh, and that's, before the Russians and the Italian mobster and the stolen heads and, and way, way more besides, uh, we're going to go back to 1932. And that's when, uh, well, I guess a baby <laughs> called Robert Nelson is born in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, now, I, didn't, I don't know if he was called Bob as a baby, but young Robert's life is pretty tragic from the off. His mother is an alcoholic and his father, Elvin, leaves before he's even born. Robert's stepfather is actually a guy named John Fats Buccelli, and as you might guess from the name, he is no stranger to crime. In fact, in 1950, Fats takes part in probably the most infamous robbery in American history. That's the so-called Great Brinks robbery at the Brinks Private Security Building on the north side of Boston. God, I hate the word Brinks. The newspapers had a field day. Some call it the perfect crime, others the crime of the century, or the fabulous Brinks robbery, which... I suppose it was all of those things, right? But it was pretty nuts. Um, And it goes a little something like this. Just before 7.30pm on January 17, 1950, a group of armed masked men burst out of the Brinks building, dragging sacks containing almost $3 million in cash, checks, money orders, and other notes. And that's about 32 mil today, uh, or like one city apartment or 10 avocado toasts. When the cops arrived soon after, there were almost no clues. According to witnesses, between five and seven men had entered the building, I'm guessing that's six then, all wearing navy peacoats, gloves and chauffeur's caps. Their faces had been covered with Halloween masks, although in truth, they actually look a bit more like sex dolls, which is even more disturbing. Anyway, these dolls have opened three or four locked doors to reach the building's second floor. And when they have, they force five employees onto their bellies at gunpoint tie their hands and put duct tape over their mouths. Now, this could have all gone wrong when a garage attendant buzzes into the building and the gang is ready to mess him up. But when they see him walk away, apparently unaware anything is going on, they just let him leave. So this is the biggest armed robbery ever at the time. And the gang members are kind of ingenious. They agree not to spend a dime of the cash for the next six years to avoid detection and then split it up, leaving it at a depot in town. And they even hire mobsters to watch that depot for 18 full months. But these are career criminals, and one man's stupidity brings the whole thing crashing down. Joseph Specs O'Keefe leaves his loot with another one of the group while he goes behind bars for a separate crime altogether. And then he writes a bunch of letters behind bars, 
threatening other gang members if they run off with the cash, then demanding money in the letters, and then, and this is music to the cop's ears, suggesting he might even talk. When Specs gets out of prison, the gang ringleader, Fats Pino, sends a hitman to whack him. But when the assassin fires a machine gun at Specs in the Dorchester suburb of Boston, he only causes the guy minor wounds. And that is a big, big mistake. Specs then runs straight to the feds and testifies against his Brinks co-conspirators. All eight are caught and two die before they're even tried. Although only 58 grand of the 2.7 million they took is ever recovered. And that 58 grand? It came from a false wall in the office of a contracting business run by Edward Wimpy Bennett and, yes, Fats Buccelli. Actually, though, because the authorities never find the mother loaf from the heist, both men cop pretty short sentences. Only, that's not quite it for Fats. Months after his release, he's shot in the back of the head and killed. Uh, do we actually know who killed him at all? Uh, I don't think we do, no. Um, I don't think that was ever discovered. But, um, yeah, you might, like... Uh, one thing worth noting about this case is that I think partially um, inspired uh, some of the scenes from Goodfellas, I think, um, with that oh, whole heist, uh, when they start whacking everyone afterwards, um, I oh, think in, yeah. in part, yeah. Okay. Well, Bob Nelson, I'm going to call him Bob. I don't know if he's going by Bob by the time he's 18. When do you start going by Bob? It feels like that's like a 40 and yeah, up. I feel like it's a, right, it's a rite of passage, right? I think in, uh, in Boston, you have to pick <laughs> when, your you name when you're 18. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, who gets wimpy? Shit. Um, <laughs> so Bob Nelson is 18 at the time that they all get caught for this. And he says that his stepfather's death leaves him, quote, devastated but not surprised but also that he felt strangely freed from his path, which is ever so slightly messianic. Anyway, the path he takes is pretty odd by all accounts. He gets deep into the work of a guy named Robert Ettinger, who writes a 1962 book called The Prospect of Immortality, which says that a person could be frozen now and thawed out centuries ahead. Yeah, interestingly, that, that book, actually, if you read it and you can still find it, um, that gets really dark really quickly. So Ettinger discussed freezing everyone prior to birth and then essentially removing the need oh. for childbirth. And then he said that we should only heat up the ones who didn't have certain diseases. Um, so it, it's kind of got echoes of Silicon Valley today. You have this kind of utopian future, which quickly turns into like a eugenics inspired dystopia. <laughs> You're only like a sort of, it's sort of like a Kevin Bacon rule, right? You're only ever six steps away from phrenology in Silicon Valley, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so this book, so yeah, it's like literally God level shit. I mean, whether you believe that that God is particularly good or not, uh, living forever and, and, and so on. And the young Bob, he is well into it. In 1967, he freezes the body of 73 year old James Bedford, a psychologist who is the first person on earth to be cryogenically frozen. Um, is he still around? Is he still, well, he's not with us, but is he with us? I don't know. <laughs> he, I mean, he's, he's still around. His body is with Alcor, which is the biggest cryonics company um, in the world. So basically after he was frozen by, um, by Bob, he, uh, he ended up going on this sort of tour of, of places that would let you store a frozen body. And, <laughs> Every now and then, a sort of insurance company would would call up and ask why the company had a frozen body on the premises, and he'd get turfed out. Um, and then, uh, and he was lost actually for quite a while. So the cryonics in, in industry, despite him being the first person ever frozen, and despite <laughs> obviously him being dead and frozen, managed to lose him. Um, and he eventually right. turned up. His family had been looking after him for for a long time, uh, and so uh, a couple of people went on this sort of. Uh, mission to find James Bedford and he was brought back to Alcor, which is where he is now. Um, they did actually open him up and he didn't look like he was in a very good state, to be honest. Um, someone had <laughs> squashed his nose as they put him in or something um, and he hadn't been preserved very well. I, I, I mean, this is objectively funny, but yeah, I guess it's, I guess it's sad that he's had his body smashed to pieces. But I mean, like, so, so Bob, like the, basically the criminal... Or, or the kind of escapade side of his life doesn't end with his stepfather, right? I mean, it, he's got a pretty torn rep in the in the cryonics community. Like, um, 
uh, I've got a bit from your book which says the opinion on Nelson varied within the community. Some felt he did the best he could with the resources he had, while others labelled him a con artist and a fraudster. Um, where do you come down on, on that side of things? Oh, absolutely a fraudster. So he obviously, he didn't like his stepdad, but I think he probably learned a few lessons from him. So for example, he, he sort of walked into his first meeting about chronics with like-minded people and he, he came out as they, they'd elected him a leader, despite having no, he was a TV repairman at the time. Um, <laughs> so he obviously like had the ability to, to sort of influence people. So after he, he froze James Bedford, uh, he ended up sort of freezing a, a bunch of other people. Some he knew and some he didn't. Uh, they all sort of paid him. They gave him, they gave him money to, for, for, them, for him to basically take care of their bodies for, forever. And so a lot, that money sort of went missing. Presumably he spent it on himself. He apparently went on a lot of holidays and he eventually couldn't afford to keep them frozen. So to cut a long story short, he... He, he basically took all these bodies, he started cramming them into cylinders. So they were all squished together so he could fit more people in. And then he, he rented out an underground crypt in California, put them in there, and then occasionally topped them up with, um, with, uh, with everything they needed to stay frozen. And then he spent the money. When the money ran out, he just left them to decompose. So he, uh, okay. he wrote, he actually wrote a book about this. He sounded very sorry in the book, but, um, I think that was a lot of self-promotion more than anything else. Um, so when the families of the dead came, uh, and, and found out what had happened to their relatives who are now just, you know, in these sort of metal, these sort of cylinders crammed together and, and very warm, um, and rotted, yeah. um, they sued him and obviously they won. Uh, so that was called the Chatsworth disaster. Uh, it's named after the cemetery where the crypt was. And uh, yeah, it was the first sort of infamous incident in uh, in Cryonics history. Uh, and yeah, it kind of just moved on from there, really. It was... Uh, it, did, he, did, he, did, did he kind of face any criminal charges at that point then? No, he was just sued. He didn't have any criminal charges because he'd managed to get around sort of storing bodies in a weird way by, by, hire, by renting out the crypt, essentially. So technically they were <laughs> underground and buried. Um, but no, yeah, he didn't have any criminal charges and he carried on. Um, so he didn't, he didn't actually freeze any more people, but he did sort of keep in touch with the crime industry. And when he did die, eventually he was actually frozen. Um, so they still let him be frozen. Um, and the, Did they smash his nose in as well then? Yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> someone just punched him on the way in. Um, <laughs> so some people within crime thought, he, you know, said he's a massive fraud he's dangerous and others just said oh well, he was a pioneer and he did what he could with uh with whatever he had um but he definitely t- tried to take down a few people with him like people like his secretary who he made um head of the cryonics chapter just before all, all the shit hit the fan basically so he, he tried to pin it all on her a little bit yeah just all around not a nice person and and not exactly the person you want to sort of put as your poster boy for cryonics um definitely <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've got um, a gentleman called Mike Darwin, uh, who we'll, we'll go into in a minute, but he says, uh, or you say in the book that he has nothing but scorn for, for Nelson's actions. Uh, and that Mike Darwin told you that Nelson was a sociopath and claimed that he was involved with the Boston Mafia and had no remorse for those he hurt. So I think that's pretty uh, unequivocal. Um, but Mike Darwin, I guess, takes us to another chapter of your book so tell me how we get from bob bobby robert uh nelson to the curious case of the missing frozen head yeah so this is one of my favorite chapters to work on because it was just so weird um so mike darwin uh was a slightly strange kid he walked in on his cousin uh who had died from i think it was um complication of diabetes and she'd basically been decomposed for like a week and his mum told him oh why don't you go and uh, look for your cousin and he walked in and she was like dead and seriously decomposed and it and it messed him up quite a bit so he decided he would just you know wage war against death essentially so he got into chronics really early when he was like 12 13 um and when he was about 16 he went to california and met um bob nelson who at that point was like the you know the darling of, of cryonics Mm-hmm. Um, and he instantly kind of saw through him and he, he said he actually called up um, some of the suppliers that worked with him and, and one of the guys who'd welded shut one of the cylinders after he crammed the bodies in 
um, who told him that he could smell the burning hair as he did it, which is pretty grim. Um, and so, so Mike Darwin saw all that happen, decided, okay, I'm going to take cryonics into a new future. I'm going to make it a ton more professional. Um, I'm going to make it really scientific and we're going to do things properly. Um, which he kind of did for a long time. Um, and then there was one case that kind of tripped him up. Um, and, and that's probably putting it a bit lightly. Um, so essentially, uh, a guy called, uh, a woman called Dora Kent was brought to the facility where Mike Doran worked and he was a CEO. And this is the company now is Alcor, which is still going today. And it's the biggest cryonics company. It's the one, is it in Arizona? Somewhere? It's in Arizona. Yeah. Um, back then it was in LA. Um, so they bring, uh, Mrs. Kent into the facility. She's dying. She's got like pneumonia. She's really old. Um, she's about to die. So they decide there's a thing with chronics, like the quicker you do the, the procedure after death, the better it is. So they decide, okay, we're going to bring her in before she dies. And then we're going to, we're going to freeze her as soon as she dies. And we'll have like the best results ever. Um, so they, so they do that. They get in, um, she dies, uh, they cut off her head and because this is she's only signed up for her head to be frozen um not a whole body um so they cut off her head freeze the head um and then a few hours later they 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 relax they rest they're like okay that was a tough one but we did it um and then at some point someone realizes that it didn't have a physician present to declare her dead um so they send off the death certificate um and prepare to sort of face whatever comes at them. Um, and unfortunately, someone spots that she died in an industrial facility on the death certificate, uh, and they mm. flag it up as unusual because it's not somewhere where... Because it people... is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that alerts the coroner, and the coroner is a real piece of shit and decides this is the best thing ever. So um, the coroner... Um, basically it was the guy who dug up Liberace to prove that he died of AIDS. Um, like a really nice nasty guy. piece of work. Um, uh, and so he, he decides is going to, so he goes public with this. He starts calling this cryonics company, like a, you know, a bunch of cultists and they're killing old people. So he basically contended that they cut off her head before she was dead. Um, and he made up a lot of stuff as well, saying that they found satanic material um, in, in the company. Um, so essentially, so, so, so Doran knows at this point that the police are probably going to get involved. So he has a choice and so does Alcor. The coroner is demanding the head for a post-mortem. And if the head gets put in a post-mortem, then puts through a post-mortem, then that's it. There's no chance of it being reanimated. So he has to decide if he's going to hand over the head or not. Um, and Doran obviously decides, no, he's not going to do that to poor Mrs. Kent. And he's not going to ruin her chances of, of being reanimated as a, as an 80 something year old woman in 200 years time, um, with no body. Um, so <laughs> he hides it and he wouldn't tell me where he hid the head. Um, which is really annoying. Even now he won't tell me. He did say that so it was the head still, the head's still around. I believe the head's still in the, still at alcohol. Yeah. Um, so he, he, he did say that they hid it with someone who had nothing to do with cryonics. Um, so I, I don't know how that conversation went, um, but you managed to convince them. Uh, so basically the next day the police show up, they raid the facility, um, and they're, and they're looking for the head. Um, and at this point they're, they're kind of chilled out about it because they've given them the body, um, but they're not going to hand over the head. There is a moment where they realize that they also chopped off the hands um, and they forgot to hand those over with, <laughs> with, with the body. So there was a little bit of panic over that. Um, but the police come in, they're looking for the head. They can't find it. They go absolutely mental and arrest everyone there. Um, so they're sort of dragged into questioning. And this like oddball group of characters just get pulled into the police station. The police are taking the, the piss out of them. They're saying... But uh, one of them is getting his fingerprints taken and he says, oh, do you think you'll have the same fingerprints when you are reanimating the future? And the guy's like, yes, yes, I think I do. Um, <laughs> and the police just all like roll around laughing, apparently. Um, and then they go like, 
they go to to Mike Darwin and get really like heavy with him. They say, you know, we're gonna if you if you give us the head, then you'll still have a salvageable business here. Um, they also threaten to completely um, ruin the reputation of his business partner, um, a guy called Jerry Leaf, who was working at the university at UCLA. Um, and, and they tell him to phone Jerry Leaf and tell him to get over there. Um, so he calls, he calls Jerry and he says, you know, we've been raided. You need to come down to the police station. Jerry's like, yep, absolutely. I'll be right there. And Jerry never shows up. Obviously, Jerry's not dumb. Yes. Um, yeah. Jerry can see exactly what's happening. So he drives off. He goes to a place where this Cryonix company, for reasons I have no idea, they have a stash of gold Krugerrands. Um, whoa, whoa. Yeah. okay. Yeah, As that's you do. completely legit. Yeah. So he goes and picks up the gold Krugerrands. He goes to a constitutional lawyer, like slams them on the table and says, we need your services. We're, we're in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> and this lawyer didn't question it obviously he just goes straight in yeah i'll do this probably just saw the the, the headlines um yeah. and he goes to so, so he immediately files for a restraining order against the coroner's office um so a court case is set in the meantime everyone's let go uh, from the prison so everyone's released um uh, and so this restraining order court case, this bizarre court case kicks off. And it's like, basically the lawyers saying, you know, how dare you, you know, mess around with this woman's head. She's got a right to do whatever she wants with her body. After she dies, she signed up for this. Um, like she's, he really laid it on thick. He was like, you're going to put this woman's head through a blender just because you think maybe she broke the rules. And it's like, okay. <laughs> That's, uh, I can only imagine That's what the, the, yeah what the coroner's (laughs) office was thinking at this point um but uh so essentially the judge possibly because the coroner was such an unpleasant person ruled in favor of alcohol um so he gave them a temporary restraining order and then he gave them like a permanent restraining order and at that point they'd won they could run out into the streets and celebrate um and it was like the first major victory for cryonics um and then the guy, so the, the son of Dora Kent was interviewed outside and, and he was a, a sort of big fan of Cryonics himself. And he was interviewed outside the courthouse and he said, well, it's uh, finally people have recognized that Cryonics is not just a crazy thing. Um, and all it took was the death of my mother. So, <laughs> so he, was very, he was very proud. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that was another. thing of her head. Yeah, the, just That's the potential mashing up. Um, so... Yeah, it was another one of those like chapters in Cryonics history where you think that um, everything's going to go wrong. It was kind of like the Chatsworth disaster part two, but this time they sort of got away with it. Um, and there's no indication that they did chop her head off before she was dead, but also, you know, there's no way of telling really um, if they jumped <laughs> the gun. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a major victory for Cryonics and really set up everything for the cryonics companies of today and like from that alcohol then became like the biggest cryonics company in the world is it like is it kind of conspiracy theory shaped then cryonics a lot of it because it feels the whole idea of it feels like a cult to the extent that people are doing these insane things in the hope of what maybe i mean do they genuinely think they're going to live forever or what i mean what's or is it just kind of a, a sort of mad, egotistic sort of run for a, for a lot of these people? It seems like there's a lot of sort of outsized characters in this world. Yeah, it's so I think the people that, that want, to, want to get it done are usually it's just like a long shot. And a lot of them talk about it like it's plan B. So they think that they're going to do loads of other things which are going to keep them living forever. Um, but just in case they get hit by a car or, you know, an anvil falls on their head. <laughs> then they're going to get frozen if that happens. Um, and they're like really calculated about it. So if you get, um, so one person told me, you know, oh, if I knew I was going to die, I'd, I'd immediately move to Arizona. If he was given like a diagnosis that he was going to die, he'd move to Arizona. Mm. So he's closer to the facility when he dies. And he said like, if he had Alzheimer's or something that was ruining his brain, then he'd immediately kill himself. And then uh, right outside alcohol, essentially. Um, <laughs> So yeah, they do they have a, do they have a lot of people sort of just running up to their front door and shooting themselves? Well, presume where do they shoot themselves? Presumably in the heart. Then they, they won't 
they're not going to sort of yeah yeah you're not going to ruin your head um <laughs> i'm not sure uh there have been talks of doing it in in um the netherlands so you can uh link up with the um with the uh euthanasia industry so um right yeah this does sound like we're getting into organized crime territory <laughs> so you could um you could euthanize someone and then immediately freeze them um it's the sort of conveyor belt of death and reanimation um it's almost like that future armor episode where you know you put a coin in to to kill yourself um yeah. it's <laughs> it's really it's really weird stuff um but yeah the people that run it it attracts a lot of big egos and um you know what happens when you have big egos and and weird um projects it's like it just attracts like people that want to make money or want to get power out of it. Um, so a, a yeah. lot of fraudsters are unfortunately attracted to it. Um, just... And, and so you mentioned like, this is a plan B. So the plan A is that presumably the guys who want to like hack their bodies or like take millions of presumably a lot of them bogus supplements and things like that. I read a lot of stories in sort of tech magazines about this kind of thing yeah Yeah, that's it exactly so they think that they're gonna they they think they just need to live for another 30 years because at that point like technology will will be developed which will let them live forever like um weird stuff like nanotechnology like nanobots in the blood things like that so they do anything they can to live a little bit longer um it's kind of kind of um weird you go to these events and it's full of these like they're all white guys they're all very gaunt because they do intermittent fasting <laughs> and they've all got like dyed hair as well. And, and they're desperately trying to look younger than they are. Um, so it's all kind right. of like, you know, I, I'm just thinking Steve of carrot Bush- top now. <laughs> it's a little bit like that Steve Buscemi meme, you know, and it's like, how are you doing fellow kids? <laughs> it's a lot of that. Oh basically. my God. Um, yeah. I'm suddenly not that worried about the impending nuclear war that we're about to have. Maybe it- just to like wipe the smile off their faces might be worth it. Yeah, but imagine if the frozen people were the only ones that survived, and and that was our legacy. Um, it's just Dora Kemp's head and Dora her Kemp's hands. Dora Kemp's head just scu- scuttling around a, a, <laughs> a nuclear holocaust. It'd be uh, tearing the cockroaches. <laughs> and on that note, I mean, how many stories, as you were reporting out this book, did you find that that? that were actually to do with crime. I mean, so much of it is does seem quackery or coercion or fraud or stuff like that. I mean, is there anyone that's not sort of crime adjacent in this world? Um, yeah, I think there are, there are people with like good intentions. Um, but, uh, it, it's in that sort of really that sweet spot of like, the, the science is improving to help us cure certain diseases and to help us address aging, but it's not improved enough so that we can do what these people want, which is radically extend your lives. It's like in that gap, that's where you have all the common and the fraudsters um, operating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a ton of it is, is stuff that um, you see quite a bit of is, is the stem cell companies. Um, there's so many dodgy people in that. It's just horrible. Um, so one of the things these stem cell companies do is they, uh, so they promise a miracle cure. So it's, it's either you'll live longer or we'll cure your arthritis, um, or we'll do this and that. And none of it is proven that it works. Um, and all of it is based offshore. None of it's in America. Um, it's based in countries with really, um, lax medical regulations so they can get away with it. Um, and then what they usually do is they'll get like an athlete or a military veteran um like some kind of more Mm -hmm. of a war hero the better and they'll get them they'll give them treatments get them testimonials on the website or even better get them to tell them how good it is to their fellow veterans who then come in for these really expensive um procedures which the only reason they seem to work is mostly due to like uh um the placebo effect because you're so desperate for it to work that it actually seems Mm. to um, and then sometimes it just absolutely cripples them um, later on. It's, they can have like really bad, bad reactions to it. So that's one of them. Um, but pretty much name any fringe science and there's someone trying to make money out of it. Um, yeah, there was, there's the guy that does Bulletproof Coffee, Dave Asprey. Um, he uh, 
turned up to one of these events and told everyone to take ozone gas rectally. Um, <laughs> so, so essentially what he's saying is yeah, take the gas, the, the gas that's in the atmosphere um, that protects us from the sun, take a bit of that. Right. And, and that is, uh, that can be lethal if you inhale it. And it's also corrosive. Um, and the FDA said it should not be used in any way in any health um, situation. Um, so he said, take that and blow it up your ass. Um, <laughs> and he wasn't right, even making yeah. money out of that. So he was just telling him <laughs> to do it. So it's, yeah, it's full Christ. of it. Just name any health scam and it's, and it's there. Because like, what's the ultimate thing you can offer someone? It's like, yeah, I'll make you live forever. We've been doing this for a very long time. Um, like humans have been conning other humans with immortality scams. Like the, the epic of Gilgamesh, you know, the first ever recorded yeah. story is, is a cautionary tale about people wanting to live forever, but we don't seem to learn, unfortunately. We still go for them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ever going to... I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll fall prey to it at some point if I'm... Uh, I don't know if I'm going to like walk into someone's facility and ask them to cut my head off and then stick me in a metal tube or anything, but maybe I'll stick maybe i'll blow i don't know laughing gas up my asshole at some point maybe that's going to help me live forever yeah but, well, that's, that's yeah. definitely uh-huh. less, of, less of a sacrifice but uh yeah <laughs> you know if you have uh-huh. a few beers and you, and you walk past and you saw a sign then maybe you just give it a go but uh, it probably could make you a lot of money here in berlin outside the clubs actually it's a pretty decent idea to make a few quid um so <laughs> I guess at this point we get to the story that we began with. Although I should mention, I did mention Seth MacFarlane at the top and I realise I haven't mentioned him yet, but he's quite keen to to cryogenically freeze himself apparently, which I was quite uh, surprised by. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Larry King, apparently. Larry King is another one. Wait, but Larry King's been dead. I mean, Larry King has been dead since the times of Pharaoh, but like... <laughs> but, <laughs> He wanted to cryogenically freeze himself. Apparently, he was massively into it, wanted to cryogenically freeze himself, but no one would tell me after he died if they had, because they'll never tell you who's been cryogenically frozen. Um, so he, he uh, might be frozen right now. I thought it was just that you couldn't never really know if Larry King was dead or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another one, uh, this one's a bit more dark, is uh, Jeffrey Epstein, massive fan of uh, cryonics. And oh, he yeah. wanted to freeze his head, but he also wanted to have his penis frozen. Um, okay. okay. There's a few scenarios I could think that would, that would sort of be slightly more justified in that scenario. But um, so now we've got like a nuclear holocaust, everyone's dead, and it's just Dora Kent and Jeffrey Epstein and Jeffrey Epstein's penis. And somehow they've got to keep the human race going. Anyway, so <laughs> we'll we'll go back to Cryorus because uh, I guess Cryorus is a pretty nutty story. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Like Cryorus is like bargain basement, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So Cryorus is like the worst, the cheapest, the most budget option you can go for. Um, right. So. Yeah, we did a we did an episode about uh, the gangs of Toliati and the Lada factory and sort of how Russian cars were were the laughing stock of the world. So that would seem to segue neatly into Krios, which seems like it pretty much does a similar thing. Uh, so it's apparently it's frozen seventy eight people and forty five pets since the early two thousands. Uh, did you? I mean, what? I'm mean, presumably these are dogs and cats mostly, but is there anything a bit weirder? Um, I think there is a chinchilla. Um, I believe uh, there was all, there okay. was there was one other weird animal. I can't remember. Maybe it was like a, a parrot or something. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, people get their pets frozen quite often. It's it's reasonably cheap to get your pet frozen. Um, yeah. So frankly, no one gives a toss if they like it works or not. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Udalova herself, she she had at least two dogs frozen. Um, right. Yeah. So also her, her, her mother. <laughs> <So>. Okay. <laughs> um, 
you've met her what's she like uh she, she's weird um as you can imagine and it was one of the most uncomfortable meetings and interviews of my life um so and i, I presume she's not listening because i'm genuinely worried she'll come after me <laughs> um so i i i went to moscow to meet her and and danila uh, the ex and um she put off the meeting for ages and then eventually we on the last day i was there she agreed to meet so i, I walked in and um she was wearing this sort of dress this like long flowing dress and she was on the phone when i walked in and she carried on talking but she pointed to the back of her dress to like the the fastener at the top of the dress um mm. and i immediately thought you know what have i walked in on what what is she expecting here um uh, and so I, I didn't really do anything. She kept pointing at the top of the dress. And then eventually I saw that her, her hair was caught in it. Um, so I reluctantly sort of tried to get her hair out of the, the, the clasp of her dress um, without making the dress fall off, obviously. Um, <laughs> this and, happens a lot in your parade, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is actually the fourth time this has ha- happened. Um, <laughs> And so it didn't come out. I couldn't get it off. So she, um, still on the phone, she just hands me a pair of scissors and tells me to cut her hair off. Um, so, so I just cut uh, <laughs> a lock of her hair, um, which I didn't keep. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the start of the interview. And from there, it was just kind of. Um, so she had a, an, she had her own um, translator. She doesn't speak great English, so she had her own translator. Um, and the translator okay. was, I found out later when I translated the, the interview, she was giving me this sort of glossy version of what Udalova was telling me. And Udalova actually spent a large amount of time calling me an American capitalist, um, saying that she <laughs> would throw pins at the article when it came out. Um, and, and yeah, okay. essentially just a lot of hatred. Um, and I was just sat there smiling because I didn't understand what she was saying until I eventually got it translated afterwards. Um, so yeah, a very wow. very difficult person, I would say, is the best description. Yeah, and so Danila Medvedev, I mean, also obviously weird because he was basically married to this woman for a very long time, and they set up a cry cry on this company. So um, he's not like he's not the he's not exactly the level headed one, right? He he's also completely batshit. Yeah, well, he's he's a lot. He he's like the acceptable face, I guess. Um, I guess he didn't say he wanted to throw pins at your story, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So that like he was already off to a good start because he didn't do that, but um, but he was very welcoming, and it helps that he speaks like perfect English, and uh, so he was like showing me around everywhere, telling me um who to talk to and things. Um, very helpful, but um, so so to characterize them, Udalova is the one that gets stuff done. And Medvedev is kind of the dreamer. Um, and so his everyone criticizes <laughs> him saying that he never really gets stuff done and she knows how to get stuff done. Um, and when you, you know, you learn who she partnered with, then you're not really surprised um that she does have a can-do attitude. <laughs> stuff done. <laughs> Tell us about that then. There's a certain guy. I mean, we should kind of do a run-up of the company, right? So in in 2015. Uh, the company's struggling a bit. So it signs a deal with a guy named Filippo Polistina. Um, who's he? He's pretty interesting. Yeah. So he is like uh, an Italian funeral industry mogul. And I don't want to be, uh, you know, stereotypical, but if someone told me that they were head of the Italian, at the, at the peak of the Italian funeral industry, <laughs> I would immediately <laughs> worry slightly. Um, so. So Udalova basically, originally Medvedev um, was the CEO of the company. And then they both kind of agreed that he was doing a terrible job. Um, and so Udalova took over and then she launched like these weird schemes. Um, one of them was like a, a cryo token, um, a cryo, uh, which, which was almost oh, definitely a scam. Cool. Um, but then one of them was to partner with, the, with this guy in Italy who... Um, was essentially just bringing customers from Italy to be frozen. <laughs> um, so, and obviously, for legal reasons, I'm not going to speculate on, on who the customers were that were coming from, from uh, this guy. So um, essentially, Medvedev and his crowd, because when, so 
So Medvedev and, and Udalova were married and they broke up because Medvedev had a, an affair. So when that happened, the chronics uh-huh. industry in Russia split into two factions and they started going at each other. One of the accusations they threw at Udalova was that she was um, in bed with this guy, Polistena, not literally in bed, um, and that he was part of the Italian mafia. Um, so that was obviously refuted strongly, um, but then he yeah. got arrested in this crackdown. Um, so he was, he was accused of being part of the Indrangheta family. Um, and we know that he'd been moving um, bodies essentially from Italy to Moscow to be frozen. So at this point, you don't know who's in the cryonics company, like who's been frozen there. Um, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that anyone was there improperly or that it was anybody linked to the Indrangheta family, but people did make those claims anyway. Um, right. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, the, the, he gets rounded. This is not just like a knock on the door, right? He gets rounded up in a, in a, in a raid. That's like the second biggest raid on the Italian mafia in history. There's like two and a half thousand Italian cops in Calabria and they arrest over 300 people. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, I, I don't want to speculate either, <laughs> um, but that's, that's the uh, context to how this guy gets sort of, uh, you know, rounded up by the cops. Yeah. And I put this to Udalova, who obviously said it was a travesty of justice. He was released and he was released and, um, and the charges were dropped. And, um, you know, he's an upstanding uh, uh, Italian businessman and, and, you know, Medvedev and his, and his crew had been uh, unfairly, you know, uh, labeling him as, as a mafia guy. Um, and Medvedev said, well, said it almost exactly what you said. It's like, well, there were 300 people arrested. It was a huge operation. It wasn't like they were just going door to door and asking if, you know, you were part of the Italian mafia. They obviously targeted him for a reason. Um, and Medvedev actually <laughs> told me, and I couldn't... Um, verify it that that he'd been arrested before um with the same crowd um okay so it's hard to catch a break as an italian funeral mogul these days it's, to be fair just... i would i would instantly if i was looking for a mafia member i'd probably just go down to the funeral industry mogul and, <laughs> um, just ask him what's going on um yeah so so all war war broke out basically and that's when people started to steal dead people right so that is kind of where we had it at the top of the show where there's uh well i mean i I think i mentioned that in the opening story he's going in and and taking stuff or he's going in and, and sort of occupying their facility but it goes back and forth a while right it goes back and forth a few times with people nicking stuff and and breaking into facilities and whatnot yeah, there's several raids. So it starts with, um, so Udalova is the CEO. Medvedev, after being sort of second in command and being basically left out a bit, decides Udalova is doing a terrible job. I'm going to come back and take control. Um, so he gets, so there's a board of directors uh, um, uh, of like basically co-owners. One of those people is Mike Doran from the uh, from the previous story. Mike Doran, who feels <laughs> rose. Dora Kent. Um, so Medvedev knows he just needs enough votes to vote her out of her role as CEO. Um, so he gathers the votes. He gets Darwin's vote as a proxy vote, but the rest of the people are there. Um, and so they have this really awkward meeting um, in which she's voted out. And then they think, okay, we've won. Nudelova says, no, you've not won because I changed the laws of the company uh, without you realizing to say this whole meeting is illegal. Um, and also, by the way, I took a van and I stole all of the frozen heads um, from the company. So she basically just took all of the frozen heads out of there as a way to say, you're not taking control of the company because I've got the heads and you'll never find them. Um, so, yeah, that's the first raid is the heads. So the heads go to and it's crucial to like keep track of this because they go back and forth quite a lot. Um, there's heads and there's body and there's full bodies and the heads are easier to transport obviously because they're just they're smaller the bodies really hard to transport because they're in these gigantic bats um so she just takes the heads and says okay i'm still ceo because i've got the heads 
Um, so then the sort of the pandemic kicks in and it's a bit weird. Um, Medvedev's kind of brewing in the background, figuring out what to do next. And then, uh, like you said, at the start, he gets, he, he decides to go in and take control of the facility that has the bodies. So he goes in with, with he gets rid of uh, Udalova's security, tells him to get lost. Um, and then they, they celebrate taking control of the bodies. So at this point, Medvedev has the bodies and uh, Udalova has the heads. And the key thing <laughs> to understand here, uh, this is, and it's ridiculously complicated, is Medvedev has, uh, so, so um, in amongst the heads is Medvedev's grandmother. And in amongst the bodies is Udalova's <laughs> mother. So they each have uh, the other one's loved one in their possession uh, in that current arrangement. Um, and there's so, no, there's no suggestion that they could mix them up and make some kind of like a weird family hybrid. Yeah, that would have been that would have been the solution. Clearly, uh, every everyone would have come out that a winner. Um, but no. Uh, so then, Udalova decides. So Udalova then makes several attempts to take the bodies. Um, she shows up one time, and the police um, basically chase her off and tell her to get lost. Um, and even though she got the bodies onto a truck uh, and there was liquid nitrogen pouring out of the cylinders, um, the cops sort of chased her down and sent her back. And then, uh, and then, like you said, at the start, she comes back and she takes the bodies. And that's when you think, okay, um, Udalova now has the bodies and she has the heads and she has this new facility, which she's built and she takes uh, the bodies to this new facility, which is nothing but like a, an abandoned piece of ground with a, <laughs> with a building with no doors or windows. Um, but she leaves them there. But it's not quite over because Medvedev <laughs> decided finally he's going to make a move. Uh, and before she took the bodies, <laughs> he'd gone up to a new facility and found the heads. So he stole the heads back. Um, so essentially <laughs> they've just swapped. Um, <laughs> they've swapped the body parts. Uh, she has now has the bodies. He has the heads. They each have their loved one, their relative, um, but it's oh um, my god! But now and that's where we are now. That's that's where we've left it. Yeah, that's essentially where we are now. With it going through the courts, um, there's various people. They're, they're suing each other. They're counter suing. Um, there was this, the threat made against Danilo because he had the heads, um, uh, where the two guys showed up his door. Um, Udalova says that she was um, she had um, a threat against her life at one point. Uh, there's there's lots of wow. it's just like an all out um, all out conflict, I guess. Um, Is anything going on in Russia right now? I've not really been watching the news lately. I think there's there's another war somewhere, but <laughs> <laughs> it's utterly bizarre because like they they're going at each other um, all the time, like. The, the Russian army is like building up on the Ukrainian border. Um, and it's just weird that they, they think that, that all of this is, is to save people's lives. And all they're doing is like carting these bodies and heads off between each other, playing tug of war with them. Jesus like, Christ. Couldn't be anything further than like this uh, immortal, immortalist utopia that they, that they like to make in the future. Well, I mean, that's uh, as farcical note as any to, to sort of end the show on. I mean, you've probably been asked this question about a billion times since you started working on the book, but I mean, is there anything that you've seen out of all of this stuff that's made you think that we might live forever or might we get the sweet release of death at some point? Um, I think on balance, yes, death is coming from us all. Um, <laughs> I don't <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the question, that was my question going into it. And then the question as the story unfolded and as the pandemic started and war and everything else broke out and my reporting um, was went through all of that, the question became, do we, would we want to live forever? <laughs> um, <laughs> and what kind of world have we got um, that would, you know, that would warrant living forever in it? Like, maybe we need to work on, on, on the world a little bit more before we decide we're going to live forever in it. Um, yeah. So that was my takeaway. Um, probably death is a good thing on balance. <laughs> and we'll end it there, mate. Um, when, when's the book coming out? 
so in America, it is out on the 19th, which is tomorrow, um, April 19th. Um, oh, okay. So, Time. yeah, and um, in the UK, it's uh, May 5th. So you have to wait right. a little bit longer in the UK. Uh, and I hope you don't die in the meantime, because that would be terrible. I was going to say, yeah, that would be ironic and terrible and terrible. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Peter Wolf, thanks, thanks ever so much for your time, mate. Um, yeah, lots of crime and fraudsters and scam scammers and all that kind of stuff that our listeners love. So um, I'm sure everyone enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, maybe we can catch up again at some point when you're on to some other sort of weird and wonderful uh, topic. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. All right, cheers, mate.